too, too hot for TV. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Doctor Who Too Hot for TV. We're back again with another jam-packed episode. Normally we do a little spiel here about what's been going on in the world, but I mean, lots has been going on in the world, but, you know, ultimately Doctor Who-wise, it's been pretty quiet. We're still in lockdown and, you know, there's various watch-alongs and stuff. So welcome. I'm your host, Dylan, and I'm here with my co-host, Jack. There we go. So we're going to launch straight into things, I think. Now, last at the end of last episode, we said we were doing a comic called Four Dimensional Vistas. And we are doing that. But it turns out there was a prequel sort of piece, another comic in two issues of Doctor Who magazine beforehand called Loon and Lagoon. So we're going to take a quick look at that before we jump into Four Dimensional Vistas. Bonus. Bonus. Yeah, bonus content. And we're not even charging you for it. So... Luna Lagoon was printed in Doctor Who Monthly, when it was called Doctor Who Monthly, issues 76 and 77, which is April and May of 1983. Season 20 had just gone out, so we were heading towards the 20th anniversary. The leading article in the first DWM is a question asking, who is Susan's grandmother? Do you know? Uh, Nanny who? Nanny who. The answer was basically, don't know. (laughs) They, they stew around a few things and they're just like, don't know. Riversong could be Susan's grandmother, so she could have gone back and slept with a young William Hartnell. Or an old William Hartnell. I would have slept with the old one. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? Someone got a jolly good smack. <laughs> There's also an article titled A Message from Tegan, which reads, Actress Janet Fielding has asked us to convey a message to fans that wrote to her but did not get a reply. There are several reasons for this. No stamps on the envelope, no address, and sometimes no name on the envelope. Janet will reply in italics when she has a spare moment if you supply a stamped addressed envelope. That's good to know, isn't it? Yeah. If you're writing to Janet Fielding. Um, and it also featured uh, the April Fool's joke about the Phoenix Rises. Do you know what the Phoenix Rises is? No. They claimed that they'd found footage from an incomplete Sharda-like William Hartnell story, and they were going to do an episode where it tied in with new shot footage of Peter Davison. And there was a whole big article about this episode, and it was just—it was just a joke. They were just pulling. <laughs> they were just funny. They were just pulling the legs of fandom. Good one, Dwum. Yeah, exactly. So Dwum just smashed it there with the absolute bants. Well, they did intercut a William Hartnell story with a Peter Davison one in the Five Doctors. Not really, though. They just put a clip at the beginning. Yeah, but that's uh, special. It is. It is special. Um, so Luna Lagoon. The Doctor's fishing trip is interrupted when he's taken prisoner by a World War II soldier called Fuji who is stranded on the island. The Doctor thinks the war is over, but sees a Japanese plane shooting down an American plane. When the plane crashes, Fuji goes in search of the pilot in order to kill him and restore his honour. But when he fires his gun at the American Angus Gus Goodman, it has no bullets in it as the Doctor took them out earlier and so Gus kills Fuji. Which is pretty dark. Yes, yeah. So remending. So the main thing to take away from this is that the Doctor was responsible for someone's death. Yes, yeah. It's got, um, it's, I didn't know at what time this issue was released. So I was quite surprised because it felt like, it it feels like someone has watched The Caves of Androzani and Resurrection of the Daleks and all these kind of grim, tragic ending stories and followed on from that because it's got a similar kind of nihilistic end. Yeah. 
but they haven't. This is like after season 20 when it was, the last thing that was on TV was the King's Demons. That's so weird. <laughs> it's, like, it's like all the Warriors of the Deep where the yeah. doctor, it ends with the Doctor saying there should have been another way. It's really nihilistic. So it would have been even more shocking at the time because we hadn't got that version of the season 21 Doctor where everything ends badly. Yeah. So I don't know what fans of the time must have thought, but it was just sort of prequel. And I guess I would imagine people would have thought it would all get fixed in the end, but it doesn't. Also, a very shocking revelation about Peter Davison, the fifth Doctor murderer, is that the Doctor's on a fishing trip. And I always saw the fifth Doctor as a vegetarian. No, no, he really likes fishing. In the in the comics, he makes several references to fishing. Oh, the fishing agenda. Yeah, the, well, Tom Baker fished. Yeah, I know, but different Doctor and Colin Baker did. But, you know, Peter Davison just looks like a vegetarian. Is it because he's wearing a vegetable? <laughs> Can't a guy wear celery and, like, ham? I, I guess you're right. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I, what was I thinking? I do think Peter Davison's Doctor, despite the grim thing, is funnier in this than he is on TV. Uh, I don't remember any jokes. I know that he feels very Doctorish. Yeah. I think in this one, and indeed the next one, they capture Peter Davison's Doctor better than they do on TV. It's all things that Peter Davison is capable of, and you see a bit of that in Big Finish and things like that, and you get it towards the end of his tenure. But, you know, is paper Peter Davison better than real Peter Davison? It feels like the same character. I know that comic artists would complain that uh, Peter Davison was too hard to draw because he's got no recognisable features. Doesn't he have a pleasant open face or something like that? Isn't yes, but that's the hardest thing to draw. <laughs> if he had like a massive nose or like googly Tom Baker eyes, crazy hair. Crazy hair. Colin's it's crazy hair. To draw, but um, no, it's good. And also it feels, it's definitely something that they would never do on TV. They wouldn't tell this kind of story on TV at all. No, absolutely not. And also, just having the Doctor in like an intimate historical setting seems strange. I know we've had Black Orchid, but like that's mm. a really weird kind of romp that just happens to be about somebody killing their brother and keeping him in a cupboard or whatever. Yeah, like it's like the archers with, uh, <laughs> with Burns victims. <laughs> but also, um, the whole reason we've included this is because I thought it was impossible to understand the next story without reading this one and this mm. is why we've included it because well first of all it, it sets up the character of Gus who goes on to become a companion mm -hmm. the doctor is unsure as to what time zone he's landed in and there's some confusion as to how long the war has been going on for yeah so that's like the, the initial mystery is kind of carried over and it introduces a character for the next story and the next story starts in the same location like it leads directly on mm -hmm. so I thought it's kind of the same it's the same it's the same story it's 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 like a prelude. It's like it's it's like Mission to the Unknown and Dalek's Master Plan. It's like yeah. you can watch the one without the other, but it just makes more sense if you have this little two-part story. I think it's quite a nice little respite, almost for the the Doctor. Like it is one of those stories, as you say, that you, they just wouldn't tell on television, and I don't think they tell in comics very often or on audio or whatever in the future. Like it's it's the sort of story that can almost only be told in a comic because a lot happens but nothing happens at the same time yeah. like the best bit is actually just the doctor sitting around a fire with fuji this japanese soldier that's been trapped on this island for years and just having a bit of a chat yeah and you might get a moment like that in a tv series but then there would have to be like a fleet of invading flying saucers and things like that i, I think as a little 
sidestep as a little prequel, it works. So that's why we kind of put it as a separate thing. Do you have anything else to say on this one? No. So uh, I have one thing. Yeah. Uh, TARDIS Wiki's main contribution to this instalment is, despite the title, this story has nothing to do with the moon and does not feature a lagoon. <laughs> well, it's true. Yep. Yeah. It is moonless and lagoonless. Can't argue with that. I don't think we should rate this because it will rate the whole the story yeah. as a whole afterwards. But we just wanted to give it a little a little buffer there. Yeah. Four dimensional vistas was essentially Doctor Who Monthly's twentieth anniversary celebration story, wasn't it? Um, and it ran from July to December nineteen eighty three in issues seventy eight to eighty three. Most of Doctor Who magazine's features. We're on the 20th anniversary news. DWM for the period, kind of, it was still in its infancy, so you basically just get letters and news and comic strips. And the features are largely episode guides to old stories and characters, because, I mean, how would anybody know about any of these things? Then there was news that Dinosaur Invasion Episode 1 had been found, which was the last missing Pertwee. And a whole host of colour Pertwees showed up that only existed in black and white. And then two episodes of the Daleks' master plan were also found. Then there was the news that JNT would be staying on for season 21, which I presume everybody was happy about at the time. DWM 79 features a very sexy pinup. Uh, they say in the magazine, every month we get letters asking for pinup pictures of Tegan and Nissus. There's one inside, and it's them as ancient, haggard old creatures <laughs> from um, Mordred Undead, which was a great move. Good one, Dwam. Yeah, classic Dwam. And DWM 81. Has doesn't even bother with a news page, but it does feature the greatest cover ever, which is the old scientist from Sharda, which the cover bills as the greatest story we never saw. And then after that, obviously the Five Doctors is broadcast, and I guess the 20th anniversary is over. So Jack, give us a little rundown of the plot of this epic anniversary story. After being held at gunpoint by American fighter pilot Gus, the Doctor learns that he is lost in a parallel Earth with no clue as to how he can return. The Doctor invites Gus along with him off of the island to discover a way back to the original Earth. Meanwhile, the Ice Warriors shoot down an aircraft in the North Pole. The Doctor and Gus locate the source of the parallel worlds coming from a disruption in the North Pole, where the Ice Warriors have made their base and are burying a crucible of silica into the Earth's crust. The Doctor recognises the Ice Warriors' co-conspirator as the Time Meddler. Dun-dun-dun. A specialist military force arrives to battle the Ice Warriors and rescue Gus and the Doctor. The Ice Warriors' dome lifts off into space and travels five million years into the future, by which time the silica in the crucible has gestated to form a large crystal to power the Ice Warriors' sonic cannon that will be able to destroy whole continents at once. The Doctor reveals that his entire time on Earth has been a voluntary mission by the Time Lords to observe the Ice Warriors' plan. A TARDIS chase ensues, and the Doctor finally time-rams the Monk and the Ice Warriors and destroys them all. Bloody love a good time-ram. <laughs> Who doesn't love a time-ram? So, it's um, it's an interesting story, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, a combination you weren't expecting of uh, the meddling Monk and the Ice Warriors. Yes. And as an anniversary story, I think that's quite fitting. I had no idea that it was an anniversary story. Did you not? No, I just read it. And the I, I, thing is, I really, I read this as a kid, as a teenager. Mm -hmm. I had these old copies of Doctor Who Monthly. And I also had photocopies from this strip. 
glued to my wardrobe. <laughs> so I'm really like nostalgic about this story because I really, really like the art. And there's a couple of scenes of the TARDIS on the beach at the start and Peter Davison in the TARDIS that um, I had enlarged and yeah, glued to my wardrobe. I mean, what child didn't? <laughs> it was all the rage in the early 90s to have 80s Doctor Who comics stuck to your wardrobe. I I did grow up in a parallel world. <laughs> so it starts with the Doctor's guilt over Fuji's death. Yes. Which, it's good that he felt some guilt, otherwise... Yeah. I mean, it's still very sad that Fuji's dead, but, you know... I Like, he, he's kind of contemplative, isn't he? Yeah. And uh, it, almost a bit like... I don't know, it just... Again, it's something that you just don't have time for on the TV series like even when Adric dies the doctor has like one sad moment and then he's like well let's go on an adventure yeah yeah i mean what's weird is that gus has killed fuji doctor sad that fuji's death and feels like he's played a part in it uh and then he goes on traveling with gus yeah. but, it, but it's done in a really kind of distant nihilistic way in, in just the doctor's an outsider these are two soldiers he's kind of he's had some involvement but he kind of sees that it's beyond his control what he can do and so just accepts it. But not only that, in the first segment of this story, when the Doctor realises that he's not on the original Earth, it becomes really kind of despairing that he's not on the right one. Yeah. And he walks out into the sea <laughs> and it, it looks like he's actually trying to commit suicide. Yeah, he loses his shit. It's really, it, it, like, it might, it's really hard. It could be just like a fit of just insanity, a bit like post-regenerative kind of mania mm. but then there's also that thing of it's 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 the doctor having a big existential crisis and he's just like fuck it i'm gonna drown myself <laughs> so it is really unusual yeah he is just like i'm lost here fuck it i've got no hope left i mean clearly the doctor learns how to swim between this and warriors of the deep next year where he can swim like a motherfucker yes. even underwater also as you say he accepts gus onto the tardis quite easily even though he's just killed his new mate or whatever mm. um but when he offers gus the chance to join he basically says it's going to be really fucking dangerous which you don't normally get like mm. in classic doctor who i know that's kind of was with christopher eccleston and stuff it was like a trip of a lifetime there's going to be danger but he, he just basically goes yeah it's going to be really dangerous if you, if you come with me and also this isn't a universe I'm particularly interested in, and uh, I want to leave here as soon as possible. So, is it a case that the Doctor thinks these lives are more disposable or expendable because they're in a parallel universe? I, well, I would think it was also just the fact that he's going to be stranded on a desert island, so he's quite, he would be inadvertently dooming Gus mm. to death if he didn't leave him there. There's a lot. I guess there's a lot of angst in that first story. And I think maybe that's quite typical of what was happening in comics at the time with um, things that Alan Moore was doing at looking at, you know, comic archetypes and putting a lot of angst yeah. in there. And also, like, the, the it's called Four Dimensional Vistas. I think that's the title of some kind of philosophy book. So I think it's part of the comic scene at the time, doing a lot of doobie. And writing, some, <laughs> and writing characters having existential crises. Like, yeah. what am I doing in a children's comic? <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm sure that probably comes to in a couple of strips time. Yeah. What do you think of Gus? Uh, Gus is part of an interesting lineage. 
of only male companions that the Fifth Doctor has right. in his comic strips. He never has a female companion. He has Sir Justin the Knight okay. in the Tides of Time. He frequently sees Shade, who is non-binary, but yes, could, could be a man. very true. Shade does become... A woman in the Eighth Doctor yeah. stories. Maxwell Edison, who is like a UFO nerd, who eventually appears in Big Finish. Played, Stockwell. Played by... Um, Ron Weasley's dad. Really? And Rory's dad. Ah. Your favourite dad companion. He is my favourite dad companion. I can't remember his name. Mark Williams. Yeah, so Mark Williams plays him in Big Finish. Yes. And then we get Gus. Again, he uh, Gus is definitely someone that Eric Say would, would write in terms of just yeah. like a kind of a butch soldier <laughs> who eric saywood would, would be more interested in telling his story than anything to do with the doctor at all yes yeah the fifth doctor turns up two minutes before the <laughs> <laughs> do you think do you think they were using these male companions because perhaps there was a bit of a backlash of people not liking the female companions that were with that doctor or perhaps not even maybe they liked the female companions but didn't necessarily care for say adric and turlow don't know. I would have thought maybe it was just British comics was a quite a blokey scene, and and, and especially if you're doing Doctor Who, I think you could just kind of if there was there wasn't any pressure to have you know female characters, mm. it might have just been them because most doing their own most thing. of the fans didn't know what a lady was. They knew who Tegan and Missa were <laughs> in their old makeup. But I like I do I do like Gus as a contrast to the Fifth Doctor being this kind of. The fifth doctor is the the gentle doctor who gets lost in this very kind of nihilistic, violent world. Yeah. And it's good to put it's interesting to have a, you know, a a killer or a soldier mm. as a as a counterpoint to him. It's something that's been done a few times since in various different formats. And I think it's the obvious thing to put against the doctor. And I know obviously you get the Brigadier and yeah. the Doctor, and they clash a bit. But the Brigadier, in order to make him work, is kind of, after season seven, quite watered down and becomes less of the kind of military, yeah. like, let's blow shit up for the safety of everybody and more, yeah. like, on the Doctor's side. And it's basically that he becomes the Doctor's muscle, yeah. in a way, who kind of will do the things the Doctor doesn't want to do, but perhaps won't blow everything up immediately. Well, you, you can't... The show, the format can't sustain... An unlikable companion. Yeah. It's very hard. Even like, I mean, Turlo is one of the most interesting companions in terms of his arc, but even then he has to, it can only last for three stories. Yeah. And uh, it's the same with Adam in Christopher Eccleston's first series. He was made, written to be an unlikable companion. It, in the original pitch for The Long Game, it was called The Companion Who Couldn't. To show that not everybody can travel with the Doctor, and Doctor Who fans just hated him, and it's like you're supposed to hate him, like he's he's not the sort of person you want travelling in a TARDIS, and it's to show that the Doctor just doesn't pick anybody up. This was drawn by Mick Austin, who worked in British comics for for a while, and then has since become a successful fine artist. Really. Um. And he has undertaken two tours with Prince Charles Fucking as like hell. an artist in residence. So he did. He went with Prince Charles on a tour of the Middle East and of India. 
Fuck. Wow. So, uh, is he the most successful person to ever be involved in Doctor Who? Doctor Who comics. Because Prince Charles loves art. He does. That's true. Yes. He's a big fan of the art. Yeah. So he's he's doing well. I I really like the the visual style, and it's truly kind of there's bits of it that are really unique like when you see the multiple earths and like it's just it's very striking and it certainly has a lot more kind of style and substance to it than a lot of well the tv series at the time and i know they were dealing with different limitations but it it's just a lot more stylized yeah and it feels like even though it's the same artist for both this and Luna Lagoon. They've consciously gone for different looks, almost as if it was different directorial styles. And it, I think it just, it, it really kind of, kind of sells the thing that everybody says about Doctor Who of like, it, it swaps genres from week to week. And it's true, you've got this intimate little historical, it's not even historical, it just happens to be set in the past. And it's just a character drama. And then all of a sudden you're in this sprawling, multi-dimensional epic with ice warriors and the monk yeah i mean i like the art so much i glued it to my cupboard yes i'm going to glue it to my cupboard as well now uh once once, once we're done that should be the rating for comics <laughs> would, you, would you glue it to your co- uh, cupboard absolutely absolutely would what do you think about the ice warriors because this is the second ice warrior story comic we've done yeah i think maybe artists really like them or i mean i guess they the Ice Warriors are odd in that they were a frequent returning monster up until John Pertwee, and then yeah. that's it. It's odd. They tried to bring them back a couple of times, I think, and just the stories fell through for what whatever reason. But here, I think they look the best they've ever looked. They're so striking, and they look so powerful. And the, the way they've captured the 60s sort of aesthetic, but just kind of made it almost a bit more real. Yeah, they don't look clumsy. I never once thought this looks a bit naff. Yeah. So I guess that's a testament to the to to Mick. Yeah, and you see them in a tank. Yes. Which you don't get every day. Ice Warriors in a tank, I'm completely there for that at, at, at all times. And they've done their homework, so the whole plot is around them trying to build a sonic cannon. Which is all they ever do. Yeah, they just love sonic cannons. They love making things cold and sonic cannons. The monks inclusion here is a little interesting i mean in terms of a parallel universe plot it kind of makes sense it is it why why would he want to help the ice warriors just build a big (laughs) cannon? so i didn't know he was in it at all i had no idea and i was like and when when he shows up the likeness is a bit off so i was like Mm. is that the monk and he's all metal and no monk here i feel (laughs) like it could be anybody fiddling with time like the, the jovial kind of cheeky nature that the monk has mm. that Peter Butterworth brought to the character has just never, like, just isn't recaptured on the page at all. And I think it's a bit of a wasted inclusion. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's never a, a good enough exchange between the Doctor and the monk to make it feel... I don't think they even recognise each other, do they? Uh, the, do- the Doctor does. The Doctor recognises him. Yeah. But the monk, they never have this thing of like, oh, it's it, Doctor, mm. it's you, the my not mortal enemy, but yeah, you know, my monkish my en- enemy, my monkish mate, yeah, uh, the time fiddler, because <laughs> uh, he is in the Hartnell era twice, 
Yeah. And they know each other, and they clearly knew each other beforehand. So it just, yeah, it seems, I don't know, I just, I wasn't overly sold yeah. on his, uh, his inclusion. It was written by Steve Parkhouse, who wrote most of the Fifth Doctor stories. Uh, and he is just generally a frequent contributor to British comics. Uh, I think he's still working today. And he's worked across titles such as Sandman, Warrior, and 2000 AD. Right. And there's a degree at which this is kind of wrapping up everything that's happened in the Fifth Doctor story so far. So the explanation is that the Doctor has been residing in Stockwell. Stockwell? Stockbridge. Stockwell in South London. Yeah. Um, the Doctor's been in Stockbridge on a mission for the Time Lords to see if the Ice Warriors are up to anything, which is a bit odd because they're <laughs> in the North Pole. And so he's just <laughs> hanging around the village being like, well, something will turn up. <laughs> like, oh, shit, sorry. Wrong continent. They also, to, to, to tie up what's happened in the Fifth Doctor story, another story ends with this kind of crack military force coming in to intervene in events that the, the Doctor never meets. And then that is the the three characters that turn up at the end to Sag save the day. Three. Sag 3. Yeah, I was going to say, do they appear in anything else? They do, but they're so there's nothing significant about them. It's no. just um, it's just unit, but on ice. Because <laughs> I, I was just like, I feel like I should know who these people are. Yeah, that's a bit odd. I think is, I guess if the A team was around at the time, it's kind of like, yeah, let's get uh, a crack military force to help the Doctor out. Yeah, I mean the whole thing is quite action packed, um, which Doctor Who often is, but this just feels because it's on the page. I guess it feels more precise and. When you get a crack military team in the TV series, it's usually some overweight Rada actor who's just showing up and who just bumbles around for a bit and then gets murdered. So it's quite nice to have like Marines almost yeah. that, that that do the job. It's not Charlie from EastEnders. It's not Charlie from EastEnders. The th- the thing talking about the the amount of action in the plot. The one thing that I didn't like is that they end the strip, the final showdown, is a TARDIS chase. (laughs) I don't know if anyone that's familiar with drawings, it's quite hard to do two boxes chasing each other in an exciting and dramatic way. Yeah. I just thought, you can't end a strip like this. It's so slow and just... It's the slowest time wrap I've ever seen. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Like, the ending's a little disappointing and... There's kind of all these nice ideas, and then it's just it just feels like oh, you just time ram them. It'll be, it'll be fine. And that's one bit of fan wank too far. It's yeah. like, like I've got the ice warriors. Okay, they're building their sonic cannon. The monks here, and then oh, let's just take that bit from the time monster. Yeah, it's like when when the sonic screwdriver saves the day. I got no problem. The sonic screwdriver has been used for everything, but then the, when the final scene is the Doctor Sonic something, and you're just like. Oh, we probably could have done that from the start. Probably yeah. could have done it from a distance. Probably didn't even need to climb up that thing to get there. So, uh, but yeah, the the ending is what lets it down. But I still quite liked it. What happens to Gus? I haven't read his final story, which is the final Fifth Doctor story after this. But apparently, he dies. Oh, R.I.P. Gus. Yeah, that's a shame. Do you have anything else you want to say about? These two little tales. Good drawing. Great drawing. So would you say it's fan wank or damn swank? I think it's fan wank. It is fan wank. But it's good fan wank. It is it's 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 
the the best possible version of Fan Wank, I yeah. think. And it is like you say, it looks great, so you don't you can forgive its kind of shortcomings. Yeah. So I I would go Fan Wank with caveats. <laughs> Fannius Wankius. <laughs> <laughs> too, too, too hot for TV. So next up is Psychodrome, which is a fifth doctor, Adric, Tegan, and Nissa adventure. This was released in August 2014, just as uh, Deep Breath and Into the Dalek had been broadcast. And I was actually quite, listened to quite a lot of Big Finish then, because I really disliked Doctor Who at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like the 50th anniversary. But Matt Smith's last season and Peter Capaldi's first season, I really struggled with. So, as kind of my Doctor Who alternative, your uh, Doctor Who rebound, <laughs> my Doctor Who light, uh, I was listening to quite a lot of Big Finish. So, yeah, as I said, my least favorite era. So I probably, perhaps, held this in more high esteem just because of that. In terms of what else was going on. Big Finish had just announced that Damaged Goods, with uh, Russell T. Davis's new adventure, was going to be adapted by Big Finish. Did you ever listen to that? No. Yeah, it was it was it was good, but it wasn't as good as the book because they had to remove some of the more adult elements. And when you remove some of the more adult elements and replace things like cocaine with a made-up drug, it all starts to sound a bit GCSE drama. Other things out were the Fourth Doctor destroy the infinite. No? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the New Adventures of Bernie Summerfield with The Seventh Doctor and Ace. Masquerade starring The Fifth Doctor and Nyssa. And Second Chances, a companion chronicle read by a Wendy Padbury. This is probably similar to what we get now in terms of it's very much Doctor Who's on whenever it's on. And Big Finish are basically your alternative or your, your add-on. Alt Who. Alt Who. <laughs> Maybe alt is the wrong word. So it's th- there isn't a lot of old, you know, you don't have your BBVs or anything like that running. The Doctor, Tegan, Adric and Nyssa, I said them in order of how interesting they are as characters, <laughs> land on a planet and go to explore. As they get separated, they begin to encounter a series of familiar situations and characters. They eventually realise that the entire planet is made up of things they have encountered before, but told through the skewed prism of their own mind. Every threat is something they are scared of, and every other character is how they perceive the other members of the TARDIS crew. The most powerful figure on this world is, of course, the Doctor, and how the Doctor sees himself, twisted, fragile, and damaged. But as the TARDIS team start to doubt each other, and the themselves is their faith in the doctor that eventually destroys all that is around them and frees them to go on their way so my first question is this is kind of your TARDIS team yes like as a kid you were very much into the fifth doctor era and you know Castro Valva was one of your favorite stories yeah and, and so season 20 no season 19 was your thing how was it hearing them back together for what I presume is the first time? Well, they all sound a lot deeper in terms of their pitch. <laughs> um, I never did listen to these when they came out, but they did pique my interest because uh, just because of nostalgia. They're all doing fine. Like, as, I, as performances, it's fine. Who sounds the least like they did in the 1980s? Adric. Adric. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah, that makes sense. Does it does it capture the era? 
I would say the way the way it's written, like the the set pieces and the music, all sounds authentic, but with a uh, an attempt at characterization. It's obviously been influenced by the new series. My my issue, I got into Big Finish when it first began, and so for many years that was new Doctor Who for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously. Since Nick Briggs took over and this new series and the the series came back to TV, their remit in terms of how they're marketing, how they are marketed and what they want to do, has changed. And the most substantial thing that's changed in that time is that they would just before the the TV show came back, they would just do a story and it would be the Doctor and companions turn up, the Fifth Doctor and Nissa arrive and have an adventure, mm-hmm. the Seventh Doctor and Ace arrive have an adventure, the the Sixth Doctor's on his own meets. Evelyn mm-hmm. um, and then they generated their own continuities with the characters now they're going back and filling in all of these kind of unfinished emotional plot lines from the show yeah. so this is we need to we need to have a story set right after Castrovelva to really establish the crew and yeah. put them together and for me it requires more to suspend my disbelief in in believing these are the same characters that have occurred just after Castrovalva, when mm-hmm. they all sound 50 years older, yeah. then it is just to do, okay, we're just going to do a story about the Doctor and Adric turning up somewhere. Okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. But also, I think this fills in a gap better than when they do, like, Revenge of the Vardens or something like that. It's in that they've all been on quite an emotional journey that's never really that's never really tackled in the TV series. Oh yeah, it does, what it sets out to do, it does well and as a character piece that brings together a new TARDIS team. And like you actually go, oh, now I understand why Tegan's like she is, why Nissa's like she is, why Adric's like she is. And you just <laughs> it was just never there before. You just said, I understand why Adric is why she is. <laughs> <laughs> like Adric is like he is. Um, it's so, you know, you think of what's happened to Tegan in the last 48 hours. She was on her way to work. Her aunt gets shrunk. She's on a spaceship. She goes to Legopolis. She sees the, the man she's just met's face change. And then she's on Castrovalva. That's like, she hasn't even been to sleep. Stumbled out of bed and straight into Castrovalva. <laughs> Bought myself a cup of ambition. <laughs> um, Nissa watched her stepmom die. Then her father disappeared. Then she later sees her dad again, but he's been taken over by the master, and then her entire planet gets destroyed. Yeah. Adric ran away of his own choice after losing his brother. Then he watches the people he ran away with argue and then separate. Then he watches the doc he finally thinks, right, I've got this amazing guy, the doctor to myself, really gonna learn from him, looking up to him, and he changes into somebody completely different. It was the eighties, you'd have a drink at lunchtime and just work on through it. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's that, that that's maybe what they did, and maybe this adventure should have just been them getting a bit pissed up and going, God, that was a fun-filled 24 hours, wasn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming it's set between Castrovalva and Fort of Doomsday, but it certainly seems like the the, the first place it could be. Um, as I said, it makes the uneasy companion relationships work, and it also, as with the comic strips, it's funnier. Yeah. Because, again, JNT was very anti-jokes because the Graham Williams era had taken it too far, mm. in his opinion. So, 
She can't have science and jokes no, at the same time. No, they can't exist together. The way I feel about it, it's so fucking 80s, but it's almost doing 80s Doctor Who better than 80s Doctor Who did it at the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, which, like, the music is so reminiscent of 80s Doctor Who music. But 80s Doctor Who music does this thing where it starts off really good for a bit. Yeah. And then by the time you get to the Colin Baker era and the late Peter Davison, it's really shit. This is like, if we just carried on doing this and got slightly better musicians, like, you're like, you could transfer this music to an 80s sci-fi film that was like a blockbuster and there wouldn't be too much of a difference. Well, I was just really, really impressed. Which of the three companions do you think comes off best in it? Uh, it's not I think Nissa. Adric. It's never Nissa. Adric. Uh, the most, well, I found it interesting that um, they explore the fact that Adric is loyal to the, is basically, he was signed up to be loyal to the fourth Doctor and now yeah. he's changed. And he's the kind of, he's the most consistent element in the TARDIS. And I think yeah. that's that's nicely touched upon. But also each of the characters has a moment where they're kind of placed into their worst nightmare. Yeah. And for Adric, it's been given a task that he can't solve that hurts everyone around him. And it's basically a complete copy of him uh, trying to solve the, the, the computer on the freighter before yeah. he dies. So that's quite a nice tragic element that they put in. It's 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 foreshadowing, but not foreshadowing because it was after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. I did like um, Nissa's worst nightmare as well, that she was just trying to save people as a scientist and just couldn't do it. That was felt quite true to the character. That feeds into how she leaves in Terminus, where mm. I guess that's her survivor's guilt of like, I'm the last truck and that there is. Yeah. So I want to save as many people as I can. So she goes and saves the Lazars. Yeah. And that that's kind of subtly played in here. Yeah, I wasn't totally convinced by the Doctor's worst nightmare, which is just his him letting his companions down. In the, in the way that I understand why Toby Whithouse in the God Complex said we'll give the Doctor his worst nightmare, but never see it because it's kind of it's it's one of those things that diminishes the character because he's done so much that you just go he wouldn't be afraid of that in a way, um, and here it's a bit like. Letting Tiga and Nissa and Adric down, really. Well, and if you, the mind of evil to believe, his worst nightmare is Coquillian and a war machine and fire and fire. But fire is very scary. Yeah, no, the, uh, the fire is convincing. Coquillian, not you so should much. be scared of fire. <laughs> yeah, if you're not, you're an idiot. I do like the way they see each other, though. Like, I won't go through all of them, but Adric sees Tegan as a master of skepticism, as the monastery's professional doubter. Yes, which yeah. is pretty good and Tegan sees the doctor as like uh, an imperial colonial busybody oh that's the best bit about it I thought that was really funny yeah that that is very funny and I can't really remember how anyone sees Nyssa because I mean isn't that the embodiment of Nyssa Nyssa is hand sanitizer (laughs) human form Uh, hand sanitizer is very important currently I know as in she's good in a crisis (laughs) yeah okay I'll, I'll get that and then obviously we get the nice little throwaway of, oh, of course there's a version of the Master here, but it's not. It's the Doctor. It's the 80s Doctor Who. You expect the Master to show up in the yeah. Jameson era. And I think one of the tragedies of the Big Finish era, and I imagine this will be rectified now they're recasting everybody, 
is that you don't have the Anthony Ainley master showing up all the time. That's true. Because he loves showing up, mm. and he's always popping his head around the corner and being dressed up in some ridiculous disguise. And as stupid as some of those are, I, I do feel like we, we miss out. We could also play a lovely drinking game to this, which is drink every time there's an 80s Doctor Who reference, and I reckon you'd be smashed by the end of it. Yeah. Like, how many different elements can you pull out of the, uh, uh, can you pull out of that? Uh, they, they make reference to the monitor. Yeah. The, the town in State of Decay. The Starliner. Those spiders. The spiders. I mean, it's the plot device of it being the psychodrome in terms yeah. of it being this kind of psychic domain where they remember all of their previous adventures from the past six episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's just a metaphor for Big Finish. <laughs> like Big Finish is the psychodrome where you can, anything you see, you can turn into something from the classic series. Yeah. Uh, do you know what? I could well see a story like this being utilised for an anniversary story at some point where the, it just kind of suggests things from the past rather than necessarily reuses them. So this was the winner of the Doctor Who magazine 2014 season survey favourite audio drama award, which I you know I think is fair. I think it's 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 a fairly solid story. My one complaint is a complaint that could be levelled at a lot of Big Finish and indeed a lot of classic Doctor Who, in that it's told in the style of classic Doctor Who and it's just a bit too long. Yeah. Like episode two just basically explains the plot, yeah. which you could have done with a conversation in two minutes. But I wouldn't hold that against it. Yeah. You know? It's 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 just the nature of classic Doctor Who, even new classic Doctor Who. And actually at the same time, when you get a Tom Baker story, it's only two episodes. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> what are you, two 45-minute episodes? You can't do this to Tom Baker. He needs four 25-minute episodes. Um, it was written by Jonathan Morris. Now, he's written the most ridiculous amount of Doctor Who for Big Finish. Not just Big Finish. He's written for BBC Books. He's written for every Doctor that Big Finish has had. He's written Companion Chronicles, Jago and Lightfoot short stories and basically just he is mr big finish mm-hmm. uh, if you get the big finish calendar he is january february march april and may some of my favorites of his include the haunting of thomas brewster the crimes of thomas brewster and the antimatter have you heard any of those uh i've heard the thomas brewster ones yeah and i read a bbc book uh by him called the tomorrow windows okay. which was one of the last of the eighth doctor books that BBC released, yeah, and that was really funny. It's like a funny Douglas Adams story, yeah. Um, and John Coleshaw makes an appearance in it, really. As, as himself. <laughs> there's, there's like a bit. There's an event full of journalists, and John Coleshaw's there, and it was just like, oh, that's a real person. And also, this was the, at the point when the TV show wasn't back on. I don't think the new series had started or was about to be released, right? And yeah. it, John Coleshaw was still a name in Doctor Who fandom. <laughs> you know, 15 years ago I mean he's still a name now he plays the Brigadier and Chameleon now for Big Finish yes yeah did you know that yeah yeah I just remembered it I blocked it out and eventually he will play a lot more parts all he's got to do is perfect his Ainley <laughs> and uh, he'll be fine so I think John A. Morris is a great writer and I 
I think every Doctor Who fan who's ever gone beyond the TV show is probably familiar with some of his work. He's just got it all covered. Yes. He's, I think call him a new Terrence Dix. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like Certainly of the, all, the, all the extended universe stuff. It was directed by Ken Bentley and produced by David Richardson, and they're basically just... They're the big Finnish guys, you know. Yeah. They're, 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 they do just as much as... Um, Barnaby Edwards and Nick Briggs does. They're just all all part of that. I really, really enjoyed it. But it's fan wank, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's it's decent fan wank. I think that is exactly what everything in this episode has been. Is absolute yeah. top draw, decent fan wank. And I think that the fifth doctor especially probably does better in other mediums than on TV. Because I feel like Peter Davison really gets his teeth into the part in his final season, and that's certainly my favourite of his seasons. What about you? What, which which what are you? you know, uh, I like Davo favourites. I like his his first series. Yeah, uh, Cash Valva. Th- always my favourite. I think that first series is really strong. I think it probably lacks. I I think where it lacks is probably the direction. Into, as in the actual people yeah. directing it. But I think if that's when there isn't really a script editor. I, I don't know what happened behind the scenes. I don't know what happened behind the scenes. I think it's in between Bidmead and Saywood. So it probably needed slightly more of a through line, but certainly Saywood's first season is an absolute fucking mess. Yeah, uh, It's a well-known fact that if there's an anniversary season of Doctor Who, it's going to be a bit iffy. Because um, they're saving it all for the big one. So, absolute fan wank, yep. but the best possible. Next time, yeah. we're going Sixth Doctor. Yep. We're going full on Colin Baker. Yeah. We've got a comic. We're going to do the big one. Voyager. Yeah. And we're going to listen to an audio that I've never listened to, and I don't think you've ever listened no. to. So this would be the second Doctor Who audio adventure, I think. Yeah. And it's only bloody slip back. <laughs> Uh, I've got no idea what to expect from this, so that's going to be pretty interesting. And that'll be back in a month, but in two weeks' time, there's going to be another episode that you aren't on, and it's a Dalek Chronicle special with Gareth Preston, who's one of the BBV authors, so that's going to be very exciting. We've already recorded it, and so there's just a bit of bonus lockdown content for everybody out there. So until next time, I've been Dylan. I've been Jack. And we are Doctor Who Too Hot for TV.